0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word and to focus and concentrate and During the silent prayer, when you hear the cellophane crinkling and the crunching going on, you'll know who it is. (laughs) I couldn't resist that. All right, let's bow our heads together. Open prayer. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening, that we have this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of these uh, eternal truths that are uh, revealed by you, and how these how different themes are developed throughout the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And as we continue our study related to the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, we pray that we might uh, come to a uh, better, greater, clearer understanding of this, and also that it uh, might become more real to us as a uh, as a, a factor that stimulates us to uh push on in our spiritual life recognizing that that one day we will be returning with him uh ready to establish the kingdom and to rule and reign with him uh, on into eternity. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things we study this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now last time which was what 3 weeks ago before I went to went to Kiev, we were in Revelation chapter 19, and we're not going to be there very long this evening. We finished up with the second coming of Christ. But what we have in Revelation 19 is really a summary event, just a simple description of the Lord returning, uh, uh, accompanied by the bride, and we see the depiction of him as the one who is the a uh, judge who is qualified to uh, establish a righteous reign upon the earth. And this is what is uh, uh, emphasized in the way he is described. He is called faithful and true, verse 11. Uh, by means of righteousness, he judges and makes war. And then we have the description of him, which is reminiscent of the description John uh, gave of Christ when Christ appeared to him on the isle, island of Patmos back in Revelation 1. Uh, his eyes are like a flame of fire, indicating uh, that they. Uh, his eyes always indicate something about knowledge. The f- uh, flame of fire, fire represents purification, and he sees the, the truth, sees all things. Uh, his return, it will be for purification and judgment. Uh, on his head are many crowns, emphasizing his sovereignty. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. We'll get into why that is in a minute. As we go through our, uh, our study starting tonight, we're going to get into a more de- detailed study related to his return. And he is clothed in fi- fine white linen, indicating uh, holiness, purity, his preparation qualifications to judge, this is also indicated by the sharp sword, the Romphius sword. This isn't the Machaira short sword, but the Romphius sword, which indicates judgment and conquest, and he is going to establish, uh, establish himself as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and establish and conquer the nations. Now, all of this is just simply summarized here in these verses, but what's behind this There's a host of passages in the Old Testament that you find in the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, many of the minor prophets give us just snapshots of these events, and it's somewhat difficult at times to put all of these together, but that's what uh, we're going to start doing uh, beginning this evening. We'll have a preliminary introduction tonight. As we start a study of the Day of the Lord, this is a little more technical study on the Day of the Lord than I have presented in the past, simply because there is a certain level of controversy on the terminology, Day of the Lord, just exactly how it's used and what it what it refers to. And I've been working my way through that for, I don't know, decades, trying to come to uh, answer at least a couple of questions that have been raised. And also the day of the Lord as a description of this whole judgment as a focus of God establishing his rule on the earth and how that plays into the prophecies uh, related to Israel. That is the preliminary or the introduction to a study on the details of the Armageddon campaign, which is not just a battle, which is the sort of a misconception that many people have. And we've gone through the uh, overview of the eight stages on the Armageddon campaign. But I want to stop and go through those in more detail and put together the different passages as they're given in Joel, Zechariah, uh, Zephaniah, uh, passages in Isaiah as well as uh, Jeremiah all pull these different events together. But as I said, there's no one place in Scripture that we can go that gives us just this chronological flow that puts everything together. So it takes uh, some time and study to do this and to correlate these passages. So I want to take the time to do that as we come to our uh, the conclusion of our study in the tribulation. And then that will automatically lead into what happens after the eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon as we go into what is known as a 75-day interval between the return of Christ when he returns to Jerusalem, and then that begins a period of judgment that will include the judgment on the uh, Antichrist judgment on the false prophet the casting of Satan into the lake of fire judgment of the sheep and the, the sheep and the goat nation uh judgment on the uh sheep and the goat gentile judgments Matthew 25 and then on into the preparation for the establishment of the kingdom dealing with some uh passages in Ezekiel so there's a lot of things that are not stated in revelation that are stated in more detail in old testament prophecy so we'll put all of that together as it fits between revelation 19:16 and the beginning of chapter 20 so at the as we saw last time when the lord returns he has written he has according to verse 16 he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings and Lord of Lords indicating that this is what he is doing at his, at the second coming is establishing himself as the true ruler over all of the nations on the earth. Now that fulfills Old Testament prophecy specifically related to the, this term that we have, the day of the Lord. And this is a term that is uh, crucial for understanding what is happening during the end time, so we'll begin tonight with a study of the Day of the Lord and how that's used in the Old Testament. First of all, this phrase occurs in 19 Old Testament verses. That is in reference to a special time of divine judgment. There's one or two places where you have the phrase Day of the Lord, but it's like the Day of the Lord's uh, feast or something like that, and it's not referring to this time of, of uh, divine judgment. But it's gets complicated because it's not just that simple phrase, day of the Lord, that is of significance, but there are additional phrases that we find that allude to that, phrases such as uh, that day, on that day. Then you have another phrase like just the day. Just do a concordance study sometime of every place that you have the word, the phrase, the day in the Old Testament. Hundreds of those, and only a few of those may refer to, uh, or allude to the day of the Lord. But you have to work your way through all kinds of, uh, different passages. You have phrases like the great day of the, the great day of the Lord, Zephaniah 114, the great day of God, 2 Peter 3.12 and Revelation 16.14. Uh, so these are all uh, different terms that are used to describe this. And then there's another group of terms that I'm still not sure how they relate, but they disc- they talk about the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of intense wrath, the day of the Lord's anger uh the lord's day of anger so these are these don't use the precise phrase the great day of the lord or the day of the lord but they do seem to relate to this whole concept of a special uh, time of divine judgment so there's a lot of uh data to go through in order to systematize it and summarize it the second point is to recognize that the term the day of the Lord refers to a time of God's special intervention into the course of world events to judge his enemies, to accomplish his purpose for history, and thereby to demonstrate who he is as the sovereign God of the universe. That's why this fits within our study when we see Jesus returning as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's establishing his rule, his reign, as the Son of Man who has been given the kingdom by the Father. And so that is, in a narrow sense, the meaning, the reference of the term, Day of the Lord. But in a broader sense, the term includes much more than just the immediate events surrounding the return of Christ to the earth uh, broader than the day of uh, or the armageddon campaign and broad broadly speaking it, it includes at least the uh uh the tribulation period or daniel's 70th week but the term also has been used or variations of it are used to refer to certain historical judgments that God brought against Jerusalem or against Israel in the Old Testament, such as in 586 B.C. when the southern kingdom was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was uh, was destroyed, the people were taken into captivity. That was a day of the Lord. But it is not the day of the Lord that we think of in terms of the uh, future judgment related to the second Coming. So all of these uh, references have as their ultimate fulfillment the return of the king of kings and lord of lords to establish his kingdom upon the earth in Revelation 19. So as we go through this, I want to approach this by looking at some some of the key passages where the term day of the Lord is used so that we can develop our understanding of this uh, biblically, not just come in and, and sort of establish that this is what it talks about, but go through the passages where the phrase is used so that we understand what what is said, what is taught in the progress of Revelation. Now, I'm not going to approach this uh, strictly on a chronological basis, but uh, pretty close to that. And one of the earlier, it's not the earliest mention of the Day of the Lord, the earliest is Obadiah, which we will cover tonight. In fact, we'll cover the whole book of Obadiah tonight. So you'll be here for a while, all 21 verses. Whenever you label this to put it out on the Internet, you might want to cut this as a separate Obadiah lesson, because this may be the only time in my however many years of ministry that I cover the book of Obadiah, so... Uh, We can separate that out. Uh, The day of the Lord is one of the first mentions of the day of the Lord is in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, so turn with me now to the second chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 is one of those tremendous critical chapters that we have in the scripture. It talks about the millennium and it talks about the day of the Lord, but not like we would think in, in a chronological order. We would think, okay, it's going to talk about the day of the Lord first and then the millennium, but it doesn't do that. It starts off talking about the millennium, and then it talks about uh, the day of the Lord. So it, to give you just a, a brief outline of this chapter, the verses 2 uh, through 4 give indications of the what the millennium will be like, what the kingdom will be like for Israel. Verses uh, actually verses one through four give that description of the millennial kingdom, which will tie into uh the kingdom as we get into it in Revelation twenty, verses one through six. And in those verses we see that It is Mount Zion that it will become the focal point of all worship in the millennial kingdom, and all nations will come to it. In verse 2 we read, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house... Now this is not the present temple mount, because when you look at the descriptions of the millennial temple... And in uh, Ezekiel, the the temple is, the future temple, which will be the fourth temple, is roughly one mile square, so it is going to be enormous. There's going to be, with this, probably in association with this great earthquake that occurs uh, in Jerusalem during the final judgments, final bowl judgments, there are several others, but in the final bowl judgments, there will be a huge upheaval that will create a uh, some kind of mountain that will become the home of the fourth temple. So, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. So all of the Gentile nations will have as a focal point of their worship in the millennial kingdom the, the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. These are the Gentiles. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. This is the rod of iron. Uh Rule in the millennial kingdom. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This isn't the uh, creed of the United Nations, although that is what they have uh, over the entry to the UN. They stole that from the Bible because they're claiming a messianic role. But this is what... Will only occur when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. That's the only time that there's going to be real world peace. And until that time, uh, it's all uh, just a wasted time trying to achieve world peace. Not that it's not value to uh, have uh, peace, but that trying to stamp out war is never going to occur on on. The basis of human effort. It's only going to be when the Lord returns that that can take place. So those first uh, verses two through four focus on the millennial kingdom, and then verses five uh, five through nine are going to focus on this call to Jacob in terms of the present time. That in light of the future that will come, uh, it's a call to. Uh, obedience, and to reject idolatry, uh, because there will be this future day of judgment. And then we come to the section that I want to focus on, which is in verses 10 through 22, which is where Isaiah looks beyond the immediate of 5 through 9, and he looks into the distant future and the judgment that occurs as the day of the Lord, and at this time, he describes the day of the Lord as a time of judgment upon the nations, upon those who are proud, those who are arrogant. And God will display his, his power, his omnipotence, his holiness, his righteousness, and that all of those who are in rebellion against him will flee before him in terror. Now, the key verses that I want to focus on are, first of all, verses 11 through 13. 11 through 13. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. So the focal point of the judgment is against the arrogance of man who has lifted himself up against God, man seeking to be God himself. And the Lord alone is exalted in that day. That is a key term there because the reference is to the day of the Lord, as we see in verse 12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all of the oaks of uh, Bashan, now Bashan is the area we now refer to as the Golan Heights and apparently in the ancient world, this was these were both areas in Lebanon and up on the Golan Heights that, where it was heavily forested, and the strength of the trees was uh, proverbial, but the power of God is such that even uh, these trees, the cedars of Lebanon, and the oaks of Bashan will be uh, nothing. They will be torn down. Uh, Verse 14 goes on to describe this in poetic terms, upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, upon every fortified wall, on all the ships of Tarshish. Now Tarshish is another name for Spain. That's where Tarshish was located, was where the Iberian, what we now refer to as the Iberian Peninsula, uh, where where Spain is. And this was at the uh, western end of the Mediterranean, and the uh, the uh, Phoenicians would sail past the uh, Straits of Gibraltar there out into the Atlantic, and would and had trade uh, down south around Africa as well as up into uh, up into Europe, and so all of the ships of Tarshish is a reference to all of the commerce and all of the trade that was going forth out of the Mediterranean. Uh, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful uh, sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought shall be brought low. But the uh, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. So the picture here is that when the day of the Lord comes, he destroys the arrogance of man. But how he does that is then described uh, more fully, starting in verse 19. Now listen to the description here, because this should strike a chord of familiarity with you. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily now this is talking about some kind of physical earthquake that occurs and their response is to go into the rocks and into the caves of the earth in order to escape the terror of the Lord and verse 20 goes on to say in that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold that which he values the most, his riches, his wealth, his possessions, he will throw away um, to the moles and the bats the most despised of creatures, rodents. He'll be willing to give up everything to uh, the most despised of creatures. And he will go into the clefts of the rocks, verse 21, and into the crags of the rugged rocks, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Now, what does this remind you of? Well, if you're thinking in terms of Revelation, it ought to remind you of the sixth seal judgment, which occurs very early on in the tribulation period. Revelation 6.14 we read, And the sky was uh, split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places now if you think about that description and then of um the description there in verses uh, 21 and 20 uh, i mean uh, 20 and 21 it's the same kind of response that we have in revelation 6:15 6, and 16 the kings of the earth and the great men The commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day. There's that term related to the day of the Lord. The great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand. And so there is a depiction here. In Isaiah 2:10 through 14, that sounds just like what is described in the sixth seal judgment. And that would put the day of the Lord, or events related to the day of the Lord, as very early in the period of Daniel's 70th week. It is a time of judgment where the, the proud, the mighty, the strong, the generals, the leaders of, of the earth dwellers are... Are fully aware that God is the one who is bringing judgment against them, and yet they continue to resist him, shake their fists in his face, and refuse to bow down, but they're going to try to crawl into the holes, uh, in the ground in order to, uh, in order to be protected from divine judgment. So what we get from our first reference of Revelation, the Day of the Lord, is that this is a term that, that seems to describe the same events that are described in the this, in this sixth seal judgment. So that the term Day of the Lord is a term that covers, uh, covers Daniel's 70th week from the very, uh, from the very beginning. Now the next passage that I want to look at is in Isaiah chapter uh, 13. Isaiah chapter uh, Thirteen, which is a which deals with the uh, judgment on Babylon. We spent a lot of time here, so I'm not going to spend uh, too much time talking about this section. But we, this is the next use of the term in the first eight verses. And specifically, it's used in verse six. And this is related to the judgment and the destruction on Babylon, which is then described in Revelation 17 and 18. Look at verse 6. "'Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them.' They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth, and they will be amazed at one another, and their faces will be like flames. And what I want you to note from this is that this is the first time we see a reference to uh, uh, this analogy of labor pains in describing all of this suffering and all of the horrors that go with the day of the Lord. And the picture is, is that something is being born, and before this new thing can come into existence, uh, there is going to be a time of unprecedented, uh, suffering as if, uh, history itself, as if the earth is in labor to give birth to this new thing. Of course, the new thing that's coming is the messianic kingdom, but first there has to be this judgment and this, uh, this purification. Isaiah thirteen nine then goes on to say, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Now, again, this is a this gives a description of certain astrogeophysical phenomena that occur in association with the day of the Lord, that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not cause its, its light to shine. Well, we have the same kind of thing happening early on in the, uh, tribulation period in association with these, these other judgments. So, um, One of the questions that I've had raised uh, as I've talked with um, others who've wrestled with some of these issues related to the day of the Lord is the tendency to try to put all of these at the same time. When we get to Joel 2, we'll see that Joel describes the same phenomena as occurring right before the Lord returns and so if you but if you try to make all of these references refer to that same event, then you've got a problem because you can't fit it all chronologically and as I pointed out in revelation uh six fourteen the sky being split apart like a scroll being rolled up, you have the this same um astro geophysical phenomena taking place. Uh, early on in the first series of, of judgments, so there are several times during the tribulation period where the sun and the moon the, the light from the sun and the moon are impacted by the these uh, judgments, and so all of this fits this this in increasing intensification of judgment that is known as the uh, as the day of the Lord, when the Lord will come to punish, verse 11 in Isaiah thirteen eleven, the I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold and a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. So we see this increasing... Uh, intensity of judgment, and again and again, it is directed towards the arrogance and the haughtiness of man. Now, the next passage to go to is on Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34, and we'll look at the uh, first eight verses there. Isaiah 34. And here we see the emphasis on judgment on the nations, judgment on the nations. Isaiah 34, 1 through 8, and then Obadiah 15, there's only one chapter in Obadiah, it has 21 verses. Obadiah 15 focuses us on the fact that this involves a judgment on the nations, the Gentiles, it's not national judgments. It's, it's not like Germany is going to be brought before, uh, God's, uh, judgment throne. It's not as if the United States of America is brought before the judgment throne. The word for nations there refers to the Gentiles. And so there'll be individual judgments of individual Gentiles. And, uh, these, uh, and they are, because they are, they make up nations, then that's how they are Uh, That's how they're described. So verse 1, Come near you nations, or you Gentiles, to hear and heed you people. You see the parallelism there between nations and people. It's a uh, synonymous parallelism in the poetry so that those two terms complement each other. So the focus is not on a corporate judgment but on individuals. Uh, Come near you nations, heed you peoples, let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all the things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them, he has given them over to slaughter. Also the slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountain shall be melted uh, with their blood." Okay, I've got three and four verses three and four up on the screen. Verse four says, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved. And here I think this is a reference not to not to angels, but it is a reference again to the uh to the heavenly to to the stars in the heavens. The host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. Where did we see that same terminology? related to the sixth scroll, that the uh, heavens are rolled up like a scroll. Same terminology used there in, in uh, Revelation chapter 6, uh, verse, verse uh, 14. The heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and its fruit falling from a fig tree. Verse 5, for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom. Where did Edom come from? So we started off talking about the nations, but now there's a focus on Edom. Edom is the homeland of the descendants of Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, who is the one who is named, given the name Israel by God uh, at Peniel. And his uh, twin brother was Esau. Esau left uh, departed and his territory was across, uh, east of the Dead Sea in the area now in Jordan. So this is the area of Edom and we'll have to look at that because that's the focal point of Obadiah. Obadiah is a judgment on Edom. <coughs> it has occurred, most of it has occurred historically. That is why you get into pa- passages like Obadiah and Nahum, which is a prophecy on the destruction of Assyria, these are not uh, not books that have a tremendous amount of direct application or relevance uh, to church-age believers, so we don't spend a lot of time in, in those particular uh, prophecies. So in verse 5 we read, My sword shall be bathed in heaven, indeed it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment." The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness with the blood of lambs and goats with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now what we'll see when we get into the stages of, of Armageddon is that this is referring to the time when the Lord returns at the second, at the second coming and he goes to the a uh, remnant of Israel that has fled according to Jesus command that when they saw the abomination of desolation they were to flee to the mountains of Judea which is to the south and then they would continue to flee across uh, across south of the dead sea into the area of modern jordan where uh, petra is located and this is also where bosra is located and it is there that they would call upon the lord to return there he returns, there he begins to execute his military victory against the armies of the Antichrist, so he will be coming up from Basra covered in blood. That's why his robe is dipped in blood uh, there in Revelation 19, I think it was around verse 13 or 14, when he, when he returns. So there's a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And then verse seven, the wild oxen shall come down with them and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Now there is another term that we have in reference to the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is a day when he, when he executes vengeance and wrath. Now vengeance is not this sort of personal petty vindictiveness. The Hebrew term references a judgment. God is executing judgment finally upon all of the evil of the nations against Israel. So this is the day or the time of the Lord's vengeance. The Hebrew word day does not necessarily mean a literal 24-hour day. It depends on the context. If you have some context that's talk about the first day, second day, third day, then that's talking about a literal 24-hour day as in Genesis chapter 1. But it also refers to a time period when you have it in context like this where there's no number associated with it. it. It can be translated, this is the time or the period of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Notice the focal point here is God is executing judgment to defend Israel for the cause of Zion. Now that brings us to the book of Obadiah. So you can turn with me in your Bible to the book of Obadiah. That's the section that if you look at it carefully, it's has, you know, it's not, doesn't have any turned pages, no dog-eared pages. It's not; uh, it, it, those pages are kind of white because you've never been there before. It's a the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's one of the twelve uh, minor prophets. They're called minor not because they're of less significance, but because they're short. And in the uh, in the Hebrew canon, in the Hebrew Old Testament these 12 prophets were bound together and, and considered one uh one book and they were simply referred to as the 12 and if you if they were organized chronologically now that's important for us in understanding something about obadiah because we really don't know who obadiah was there are some 13 people in the uh, old testament who have this name of obadiah but we don't know uh which of those uh which of the those is this Obadiah. He may not even be one of those other twelve. Uh we have there's no specific uh, historical peg in this in these twenty one verses that we can go to in order to uh identify exactly or precisely when uh this was written. But there's a couple of things that indicate that it was early, and one of those is that it is placed early in the uh, uh, in the twelve. You have uh, Hosea and Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and these were the early post-exilic, I mean pre-exilic prophets. That means before the the exile. Now, as we look at the issues, when you study the issues on the date of Obadiah. The content of Obadiah deals with a time when Edom had, uh, had not helped Israel, but had allied, uh, had been allied with the enemies of Israel, and there is a sacking and a, and a partial destruction of Jerusalem, not total. So people either identify this time period as being pretty early on, in uh, approximately 850 B.C. during the time of the ministry of Elisha, which we're studying on Sunday morning, or others will try to place it at the time of the destruction in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. The problem with that is that uh, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, uh, he did it by himself. He didn't need any help from from Edom, number one. Uh, Number two, the Nebuchadnezzar at the time of the neo Chaldean or neo babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar totally destroyed jerusalem and this isn't talking about a total destruction it's a partial destruction so it's it's probably on that basis it's probably the earlier date when there was a an assault an attack by the Philistines. They invade into uh, J- uh, Judah and into Jerusalem and they uh, they do break down the defenses of Jerusalem and there is a uh, major battle, major incursion at that point, but it is not a uh, time of total destruction. And Edom did uh, ally herself with uh, the Philistines at that battle. And like I said, that occurred approximately 850 B.C., during the same time as the ministry uh, of Elisha that we are studying. If it's early, that's supported by the fact that the Jews, uh, historically and traditionally, uh, Jewish scholars and rabbis thought and placed uh, Obadiah very early in the Old Testament. So this would put uh, Obadiah, the date of Obadiah, somewhere around 850 B.C. And the focal point is a judgment on Edom. Now, in this map, we have Edom down here to the southeast of the Dead Sea. This was the territory of Edom. Now, what happens after they're, uh, they're, later on, they're defeated by the Nabataeans, and the Edomites have to move from their traditional homeland here. This is Basra, and just to the um, south down here is approximately where Petra is located. So this is the area that is mentioned in the prophecies. But later by the New Testament time, the Edomites have all moved into this southern territory of Judah and are known as Idumeans with an I, and Herod the Great was an Edomian and they blend in with, uh, try to blend in, uh, with the Jews. Edomites had historically been antagonistic to Israel during the time of the conquest. They refused to allow, um Moses to bring the Israelites through their land on the way to Canaan. Uh, during the early monarchy, during the period of Saul and David, uh, they were hostile to Israel. They were eventually subdued and defeated by David and Solomon and were under the control of the United Kingdom. But as we've studied in our study of kings, by the time of... of um, Ahab's grandson Jehoram, they are breaking loose from that uh from that control, and then by the time of Jehoshaphat in the southern kingdom, they successfully rebel um, uh against uh against the southern kingdom and have more of an independence. By the time of the fifth century B C the uh, the Nabataeans forced them out and they move uh, westward and eventually assimilate, uh, or attempt to assimilate with the, uh, with the Jews. The focus of Obadiah is that this is a judgment on the, uh, Edomites because they have failed to, uh, be their brother's keeper. They have failed to be a protector of the descendants of Esau's brother Jacob. And because of that, they are going to be judged by God, and they are going to be removed from the uh, from their from from their homeland and from existence. And so, I'm going to give you a brief outline up here. There's three basic divisions. Uh, first of all, there's a, a warning of approaching judgment in the first nine verses. Then, their indictment is summarized in verses 10 through 14. And then there is, there's a shift from the historical judgment on Edom to the eventual uh, establishment of Israel's sovereignty and the promise, f- fulfillment of the promises of, of God to Israel in verses 15 uh, through 21. And we see that there are a lot of similarities between God's judgment and the indictment on the Edomites. And the indictment God brings against the nations in the day of the Lord at the end of history. And that, in a sense, you see that the Edomites are used as a type of all of the Gentile nations that are in arrogant hostility toward God. So this book shows the ultimate destiny of all of the Gentile nations as enemies of God throughout history and how God will eventually bring a judgment against them and establish Israel as his people. So when you read through the book, I just want to make some comments on a few things as we read in the first nine verses. This is the uh, announcement of coming judgment on the Edomites. It's a vision given to Obadiah, direct divine revelation, comes from the Lord God concerning Edom. And then Obadiah is speaking as a representative of the southern kingdom. He says, we've heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Now the her here is Edom. It is a call to the nations that God is going to use in order to bring about his judgment on the Edomites. And so this is pictured as a messenger, God sending forth through various circumstances, a call among the nations to come and, uh, attack the Edomites. Behold, God says in verse 2, I will make you small among the nations and you shall be greatly despised. The thrust of the indictment, whole indictment is Edom's arrogance and God is going to reduce them to and humble them to where they are uh, they're, they are despised. And so we see this, uh, the pride emphasized here in these verses. Uh, the pride of your hearts deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rocks. And if you've seen pictures of the area around, uh, Petra, you see how rugged that area is. They were isolated. They relied upon their, uh, the, the terrain to protect them as the Nabataeans did, uh, after them. Uh, your habitation is high. You who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Again, it's an indictment of their uh, mental attitude, sins of pride and arrogance. Verse 4, though you ascend as high as the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. And then in verses 5 through 7, the emphasis is on the fact that uh, thieves would come and they may just steal a few things and they may destroy a few things, but... um, and the divine judgment everything will be destroyed verse 5 says if thieves had come to you if robbers by night oh how you'd be cut off uh, would they not have stolen till they had enough if grape gatherers had come to you would they not have left some gleanings in other words if there were robbers or grape gatherers they would just take a little but god's judgment will destroy everything verse 6 he says oh how esau shall be searched out How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. So they would be, uh, those they trusted, the nations they were in uh, alliances with, would turn against them just as Edom had turned against her brother uh, Judah, Israel. Verse 8, will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom? So this is the destruction of Edom's leadership, the wise men in verse 8 and the mighty men in verse 9. Then in verse 10, we have the uh, indictment against them for violence against your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates, that is the gates of Jacob, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. You allied yourself with the enemies of Israel." Goes on in verse twelve, you should not have gazed on the on the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity. So they were as exultant in their victory over Judah as the enemies of Judah. And so for that they are condemned. Now verse fifteen. This is where we have the shift from the historical circumstance. "...to the future day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near." Just as God is going to judge Edom, which happened historically, God will at some point in the future judge all the nations. So what we're seeing here from our passages in Isaiah 34 and in Obadiah is that the day of the Lord judgment is a judgment on all of the nations." All of the Gentiles. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done it, it shall be done to you. That's the law of you're going to reap what you have sown. As you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, that would be in Jerusalem, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow uh as and they shall be as though they had never been. So this is a description of their judgment that shall come upon them, a picture of drinking in judgment as they as they the Edomites drank on the holy mountain, that is, in their victory over Israel, so now they will the nations shall also drink of judgment and violent defeat uh, in the same way. But then verse seventeen shifts to Israel's ultimate triumph, but on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possession. So this is talking about a future fulfillment when the house of Jacob referring to referring to Israel, shall possess their possession, shall possess the inheritance that they've never possessed. Fully in history. They will possess all the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then, verse 18, we have the two phrases, the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph, indicating the entirety of the nation Israel, all of the tribes. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, fire picturing purification and judgment. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall uh, they shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain in the house of Esau. Judgment will come. Esau or the Edomites will be destroyed, but the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, will be established. And then look at what what is said in verses 19 and 20. The south, or the Negev, the southern part of the southern part of Judah there, all that area to the south down to Kadesh Barnea is referred to as the Negev or the south. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. So now the mountains of Esau, which were not originally given to Israel as their possession, will be part of the land and part of their possession. Remember, when they first went in to conquer, they were not to take Edom. But that will be their possession in the millennial kingdom. The South shall possess the mountains of Esau. That has not happened historically, and the lowland, which is the area of Philistia over there, which is the uh, current Gaza Strip, the the lowland shall possess Philistia. Uh, and the word for lowland there is the in the Hebrew is the Shephelah, which is the uh, area of the the foothills the coastland prairie so that means that the coastal area of Israel will uh, now include all of Philistia they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria so that's the northern kingdom Benjamin shall possess Gilead that's the, uh, Benjamin was just to the area north of Jerusalem Gilead is the area in the Transjordan going across into the east side of the Jordan which is today the uh, part of the uh, kingdom of Jordan. Verse 20, And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as uh, Zarephath. And that goes up off the map up into the area of modern uh, Lebanon. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Se- Sephar shall possess the cities of the south. Well, what this is saying is after the day of the Lord... At the time of the day of the Lord, there's this judgment on all the nations. Following that judgment on all of the nations, then Israel will finally possess all of the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the prophecy from 15 to 21 is yet unfulfilled. This is future fulfillment uh, related to the a promise of the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and shows the extent of the, occupa- of the land that Israel will occupy during the millennial kingdom. Well, that just begins our study on the day of the Lord. There's a couple of more key passages in um, Amos and in Joel. And we will cover those next time. The Joel passage is the most important, covers uh, uh, the second half of Joel 2 and most of Joel 3. And that really is important to understand, to set the stage for understanding what happens at the time that the Lord returns. All of these details occur and are just simply summarized in those few verses in Revelation 19, but when he returns, he's going to establish the kingdom and establish the new covenant and uh, judge all of the nations and purify the earth and purify the land of Israel in preparation for the kingdom. So we need to, you know, work our way through these passages to understand exactly what's going to take place. Let's bow our heads together in close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to go through each of these chapters, each of these passages, that we can see how you have made uh, one prophecy after another throughout the Old Testament related to the ultimate fulfillment that comes when the Lord Jesus Christ returns uh, to establish his kingdom on the earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we pray that this would not just be an academic study for us as we understand these historical facts, but that it's a challenge to us Spiritually, because we return uh, with Him as priests and kings to rule in the millennial kingdom, and our positions at that time will be determined by our uh, our spiritual growth and our obedience during this time on the earth in preparation for our our future destiny. We pray that you would challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen.